I'm Bob Bushansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, A Love Story. Today we're going to do things a little differently than what we normally do. Normal is to interview a guest about their latest book, which could be relevant to today's events or not, and then discuss the book. I read two newspapers every day from cover to cover. Lately I've read some articles about subjects that I know very little about. Often the article or op-ed from the Wall Street Journal is totally different from the one in the New York Times. When they are in near agreement, it's a little scary. As a result of the differences and occasional agreements, I've started to do more research so that I can better understand what is happening. So you, dear listeners, benefit in a couple of ways. The first is to share my new knowledge with you, and the second way is to and I mean later in the show, and I do mean later, open the phone lines and allow you to ask questions, and I need some time to lay out the topics I'll be covering. Then you can either ask questions about the topics or add to the collective wisdom. The three main issues today are the Senate filibuster, when did it start, how did it evolve or devolve, and where does it stand today? A shorter issue, but maybe more arcane, is the Senate organizing resolution that sets up how the Senate will do its work during the year, how the committees are set up, the numbers of Democrats and Republicans on each committee, and for number three, how the two sides get around the filibuster if they don't have 60 votes by using the reconciliation ploy. I call it a ploy or trick. The senators call it during doing their everyday business. Let's start with, hopefully, uh, hold on. Let's start with, hopefully, the shortest topic. The Senate organizing resolution, without this everything, without this, everything remains the same. That's why it took 14 days to have the Senate go to the Dems. The GOP had it before Election Day, and until a new organizing resolution was drawn up and passed, showing how the power switched to the Dems, it stayed with the GOP. In 2000, there was a tie in the Senate, like there is today, at 50-50. Trent Lott became the Senate Majority Leader, and Tom Daschle became the Senate Minority Leader. But between them, they negotiated an organizing resolution and put it into effect. Boom, done. On January 20th or 21st, Mitch and Chuck could have done this very simply as well, but Mitch McConnell said, not so fast. I don't want you Dems to eliminate the filibuster and take away our power. I want a two-year guarantee that you won't do it, said Chuck. Pound salt, Mitch, ain't gonna happen here. Fortunately for Mitch, Joe Manchin, Democratic Senator of West Virginia, and Kristen Sinema, Democratic Senator of Arizona, are both pretty conservative, for Democrats anyway, and like the filibuster and not inclined to vote to kill it. Neither would put their views in writing, though. As a result, Mitch gave in and signed the organizing resolution. So as of yesterday, because Vice President 
Kamala Harris represents the 51st vote for Democrats in the Senate. All the Senate committee chairs are finally Democrats. Now, post-haste, Merrick Garland will be questioned and then voted in as our new Attorney General. He was snubbed by measly-mouthed, uh, weaselly, I'm as honest as the day is long in the Arctic in the winter, Lindsey Graham. Now, to the filibuster. First, the history as told to the Committee on Rules and Administration on Thursday, April 22, 2010, by Sarah Binder, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and professor of political science at George Washington University. She proceeds to offer three arguments about that history. First, historical law, lore says that the filibuster was part of the original design of the Senate. She said that was not true. When she scoured early Senate history, she discovered that the filibuster was created by mistake. Second, we often uh, say that the 19th century Senate was a golden age of deliberation. But the golden age was not so golden. Senate leaders by the 1840s were already trying to adopt a cloture rule, which means you cut off debate. But most such efforts to bar the filibuster were filibustered. Sarah then goes on to bust some myths. The most persistent myth is that the filibuster was part of the Founding Fathers' constitutional vision for the Senate. It is said that the upper chamber was, de was designed to be a slow-moving, moving, deliberative body that cherished minority rights. In this version of history, the filibuster was a critical part of the Framers' Senate. In fact, in digging into the history of Congress, it seemed that the filibuster was created by mistake. In 1789, the House and Senate rule books were nearly identical. Both rule books included what is known as the previous question motion. The House kept their motion, and today it empowers a simple majority to cut off debate. The Senate no longer has that rule on its books. What happened to the Senate's rules? In 1805, Vice President Aaron Burr was presiding over the Senate, freshly indicted for the murder of Alexander Hamilton. And he offered this advice. You are a great deliberative body, but a truly great Senate would have a cleaner rule book. Yours is a mess. You have lots of rules that do the same thing. And he singled out the previous question motion as one of those. Now, today we know that a simple majority in the House can use the rule to cut off debate. But in 1805, neither chamber used the rule that way. Majorities were still experimenting with it. You have to remember, 1805, that was only the fifth four-year term of office. So the new country, the new uh, legislative bodies were uh, trying to find their way. And so when Aaron Burr said, get rid of the previous question motion, the Senate didn't think twice. When they met in 1806, they dropped the motion from the Senate rule book. Why? 
not because senators in 1806 sought to protect minority rights and extend debate. They got rid of the rule by mistake because Aaron Burr told them to. Once the rule was gone, senators still did not filibuster. Deletion of the rule made possible the filibuster because the Senate no longer had a rule that could have empowered a simple majority to cut off debate. It took several decades until the minority exploited the lax limits on debate, leading to the first real live filibuster in 1837. Some people think of the 19th century as the golden age of the Senate. They say that filibusters were reserved for the great issues of the day and that all senators cherished extended debate. That view misreads history in two ways. First, there were very few filibusters before the Civil War. Why so few filibusters? First, the Senate operated by majority rule. Senators expected matters would be brought to a vote. Second, the Senate did not have a lot of work to do in those years, so there was plenty of time to wait out the opposition. Third, voting coalitions in the early Senate were not nearly as polarized as they would later become. All that changed by mid-century. The Senate grew larger and more polarized along party lines. It had more work to do, and people started paying attention to it. By the 1880s, almost every Congress began to experience at least one bout of obstructionism. For instance, over civil rights, election law, nominations, even appointment of Senate officers. Um, only some of these, the great issues of the day, uh, prevailed. There is a second reason that this was not a golden age. When filibusters did occur, leaders tried to ban them. Senate leaders tried and failed repeatedly over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries to reinstate the previous question motion. More often than not, senators gave up their quest for reform when they saw that opponents would kill it by filibuster, putting the majority's other priorities at risk. Unable to reform Senate rules, leaders developed other innovations, such as unanimous consent agreements. There seemed to have been a fallback option for managing a chamber prone to filibusters. So now, if any of you listening are uh, open to calling and either asking questions or making suggestions, the number here is 895-2448. That's 895-2448. Uh, and in the meantime, I'll go on to the third uh, item. Um, oh, there, before I do that, there are three lessons from filibuster history. First, the history of extended debate in the Senate belies the received wisdom that the filibuster was an original constitutional feature of the Senate. The filibuster is more accurate, accurately viewed as the unanticipated consequence of an early change to Senate rules. Second, reform of Senate rules is possible. There are no conditions that can lead a bipartisan supermajority to agree to change Senate rules. The minority has often held the upper hand in these contests, however, 
given the high barriers to reform imposed by inherited Senate rules. Third, and finally, the Senate adopted a supermajority rule, not because senators were uniformly committed to the filibuster. Senators chose a two-thirds rule because a minority blocked more radical reform. Short-term, pragmatic consideration almost always shape contests over reform of Senate rules. So I know that people have been asking me over the last mm, couple of years why I don't have more time for callers to call in and make declarative statements or ask questions. Well, I'm offering that opportunity. We're going to try and see if this will work, and maybe if it does, we'll do it more often. So the number for you to call is 895-2448. In the meantime, um, one of the uh, rules to get around the filibuster is called the reconciliation uh, ploy. And I call that a ploy as well because uh, you only need 51 votes. Okay, we have a caller. Hi, caller. You're live and on the air. Oh, hello. Um, uh, well, I'm a little confused now because uh, previous changes, previous proposals to change it got filibustered, but it seems like nowadays it actually could be done by a simple majority vote if they had the will to do it. That aside, uh, my suggestion is that if, if indeed it is impossible to get the majority to change it, would it not be better to go back to the Mr. Smith goes to Washington style of overt people having to stand up and talk kind of filibuster? Because I think a lot of people haven't caught on to what it is nowadays, which is just somebody can, oh, some senator or staff member can sort of uh, invoke this thing that makes it almost impossible to pass something, and it's uh, it's anonymous, I believe. Isn't that the case? No. So to have it be out front and, uh, uh, you know, something you could see on C-SPAN, I think would be an improvement over the current situation. Well, it was. Thank you. That, okay, so I'll uh, answer you, and you've gone off air. Um, the original... Uh, imposition of a supermajority was for two-thirds, and then it was brought down to 60%. So uh, right now, you need 60 votes in order uh, to pass regular legislation. Harry Reid, when he was the majority leader, he changed the rules, and that's what you could do in the beginning of a session, and actually I think you could do it almost at any time. Uh, with a simple majority, that is, change the rules of the Senate. And what Harry Reid did, uh, because Mitch McConnell was not allowing Barack Obama to choose his cabinet or replacement officers and uh, get judges onto uh, courts, uh, he changed the rules so that by a simple majority, uh, you can get judges to any court but the Supreme Court uh, and you could get cabinet members uh, approved by a simple majority as well. What you couldn't get done without 60 votes was regular legislation. Uh, 
So that's, that was changed again when Mitch McConnell became the majority leader. Uh, he reduced the requirement for the Supreme Court from 60 to 51. And that's how he put three justices on the Supreme Court for Donald Trump, uh, just by 51 votes for each of them. So that's where we are today. And Mitch sees the possibility that a Democratic Senate, although it's uh, Democratic by uh, Kamala Harris's sitting in as president of the Senate, uh, that would be the 51st vote. And that's why he wanted this requirement uh, that it would be in writing uh, that uh, Democrats would not for two years uh, change the rules. Okay, we have another caller. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Yes, I'm glad that you got it open, because I have a question that I've had for a long time. Well, Why is it and how is it that California has two senators and the 13 original colonies have two senators apiece? And so 26, col 26 senators, that's over a quarter of the Senate, is controlled by these little itty-bitty dinky New Hampshire, <laughs> Maine, Connecticut, Rhode Island, you know, where, where California and has two senators from Eureka down to San Diego. That right there is such an unequal, you know, influence on decision-making. And I don't know how you change it, but it's bothered me for a long time that there's no equity, there's no equality in our representation in the Senate. Well, and I'll, I'll take my answer off here, but that, that right there needs to be addressed at some point because of the disparity. You know, it just, there's, there's uh, no way that, the, you know, the original colonies control too much. They, Delaware's where all the corporations are, are, you know, registered to vote, registered as entities. I've been told that the, that the Washington, D.C. is like a, a bridge boys club. Uh, and I, I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Okay. So what might, what might, might you feel worse about is the fact that with 50 U.S. senators, the Democrats represent 41 million more voters than do the Republicans. So, yes, you're right. Smaller states have a disproportionate amount of power uh, in the Senate. And also uh, because of... Um, redistricting, and that uh, makes it even worse. Uh, so this occurred when our founding fathers were trying to create a country out of 13 disparate colonies, and they needed everyone to come and agree so that they could have a country, not 13 different little countries. And so they were able to do it only through negotiation. And what the smaller states would agree to is if they had equal representation in the Senate, uh, but population could determine uh, the number of uh, representatives in the House. And so over the years, there was, uh, uh, every time a new state was brought in, uh, there was maybe talk about changing things, but it never did change. Now, uh, just uh, to make it seem even more difficult, California, each senator represents a population of about 20 million people. Uh, I think it's Wyoming uh, has 
five or six hundred thousand people, uh, which would mean, uh, say, three hundred thousand people per senator as opposed to 20 million in California. I know I'm right with the 20 million because there are about 40 million people in the state of California, whether it's Wyoming that I'm thinking about or not, but you get the idea. So that's why uh, another reason why the uh, Republicans don't want the Democrats to change uh, the filibuster rule because more than likely uh, there is already a bill coming up that will allow Washington, D.C. to become a state. And they have more of a population in Washington, D.C. than do two of the other states that are already admitted into the Union. And more than likely, Washington, D.C. would have two Democratic senators. And that would be a permanent uh, a block to Republicans trying to get uh, uh, their majority. Plus, more again, we have another potential state, and that's Puerto Rico. Uh, as it stands now, in order for somebody from the island to be able to vote in a presidential election, they have to move to the mainland. They could vote for members of Congress uh, from Puerto Rico, I believe, but they certainly can't vote for president unless they're living here on the mainland. Uh, that's why so many people have moved to the, uh, 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 let's see, it's in the middle of Florida where there's a large population of Puerto Ricans. Uh, so it's, it's very strange. And this is in line with uh, a topic that I wasn't necessarily going to broach today, but I'll just dip in here a little bit. Um, Republicans are more concerned with suppressing voters than, say, Democrats are. Democrats would like everybody who is eligible over the age of 18 to be able to vote without any further restrictions. Republicans, on the other hand, see that their pet population base is dying off, older white people, and they're be being replaced by people of color having uh, many kids and a younger population, which means they'll continue doing this for a number of years. So pretty soon, uh, the voting power that Republicans have is going to diminish even further. Okay, looks like we have another caller. Hi, caller, you're on the air. Yeah, hold on, let me turn off my radio. Um, so, uh, thank you. First caller, yeah. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay, my, the first caller asked a question that I don't think you exactly understood or addressed which was my question, which is, given the, the filibuster being there, the traditional the way most people perceive the filibuster is the Mr. Smith goes to the Washington model where the guy gets up and talks for 48 hours and holds the floor, and that, you know, that makes, that is the, the delaying tactic. Whereas now, as some recent show on KZOX uh, explained, you know, all it takes to submit a filibuster is just to anonymously even uh, submit a, you know, uh, I forget what it's called, but, you know, any member of, of Congress can submit a statement saying, uh, you know, I'd like further discussion. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, anybody can do it without even breaking a sweat. So 
that rule or the way that rule is practiced has changed and it's made it so much easier to filibuster. So that's what I don't understand. And maybe you could address that. So don't don't leave so yet. Uh, pardon me? Don't leave. Let's have a, a dialogue about this. Uh, All right. But you ha you have another question? No, that was it. That's, okay. that's the question. So it's not anyone in Congress. It's only senators that have the filibuster yeah. ability. And I don't think you can do it anonymously, but certainly uh, you could suggest that your block will filibuster unless the other block uh, stops uh, what they're doing. And uh, it's a threat of filibuster that starts the process, not the actual Mr. Smith goes to Washington standing there and speaking for untold numbers of hours until everybody gets so sick and tired of it, they say, okay, okay. Uh, well, but the way I understood um, from this, I can't remember what show it was on, some guy was explaining the system, and it seemed like, you know, maybe it's just the threat that stops discussion or, or, you know, but it does seem to be that, you know, that's all it really takes to, you know, throw any kind of uh, deliberation into, you know, throw the brakes on any kind of vote. So in practice, you know, in, in practice, just somebody making uh, an objection is enough to start that whole filibuster process, and it's just gotten so much uh, easier to make a filibuster. So there's been some kind of evolution there in the way that the filibuster is used that I don't quite understand. Oh, oh, yes, there has been an evolution or a devolution, depending upon how you want to look at it, but there's one step that we hadn't <laughs> talked about yet, and that is Every bill that's going to come up for debate in the Senate is assigned a time of debate. Uh, it could be 10 hours, 30 hours, 70 hours, whatever it is. And this is why it's critical for the Mr. Smith goes to Washington part that we remember that he had to stand there for the time allotted for the debate on that particular bill and use it all up so there couldn't be additional debate. So that's what happens. It's not like there's an unlimited time frame. There isn't. There's a debate amount of time set by, and I believe it's the majority leader or the president of the Senate. Uh, and that's why time is critical. But uh, now you're right. It changed from uh, we're going to have a filibuster, Mr. President, and then somebody has to stand there and talk for as long as the debate is going to be allowed to go on. And today, there's just a threat of that, and they stop what they're doing. Yeah, so it seems like there might be some kind of procedural uh, change that could at least solve that part of the problem, not make it so damned easy to, uh, to make, you know, not make the threat of a filibuster so potent, I guess is... The question. I gotta run. I'm gonna get off the. I get off the phone, and I'll take the rest of your answer on the air. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. So uh, originally, when it was set up, it was to give power to the minority because the majority could just uh, vote or have a, a their debate and then vote, whereas the minority would be cut out of the whole process. But now, what's happened is that what I would refer to as the tyranny of the minority. Uh, because of that 60-vote threshold in order to stop debate, it makes it very hard. 
uh, because Democrats have had, uh, well, now 51, but they've had 54, 55, uh, 58, but not 60 votes. So they couldn't cut off debate and uh, the minority party could run out the time. Uh, yeah, I agree. It ought to continue to be uh, reformed, that is, the filibuster, and either eliminate it altogether or actually make people stand up there for the required number of hours. Uh, I'm not sure how that'll work out, but I think that uh, it would be better than what we have now. Uh, as I pointed out in my opening, um, when they started filibustering in 1837, they didn't do it very often, and it was not as big a problem. I think Mitch McConnell uh, invoked uh, a filibuster uh, during Obama's two terms in office, more so than almost any uh, or the total amount of filibusters that came up before that. It was an overwhelming number uh, of filibusters that Mitch McConnell introduced into the system. He's misusing the tool that senators had set up to uh, make things fairer. And as a result, they become uh, less fair. So, um, I think I've talked about the organizing resolution uh, and reconciliation is another budget tool when the filibuster is going to interfere with one party wanting to pass legislation and the other party uh, ready to invoke the filibuster and the uh, party trying to pass the legislation doesn't have 60 votes. I'll get to res uh, reconciliation in just a moment. I have another caller. Hi, caller. You're live and on the air. Hi there. Good morning. This is a very interesting topic. Um, a lot of people don't know, not until 1913, the Senate was um, appointed by state legislators. And in 1913, it was changed so the Senate could be elected by the popular vote. But that aside, um, there was something beside the filibuster, the cloture, the cloture that was um, in place to uh, it's Rule 22 that allows the Senate to end a debate with the two-thirds majority vote, and that was introduced in 1975. The Senate reduced the number of votes required for a culture to end debates from, from two-thirds, which is about 67 senators, to three-fifths, which is 60 of the 100-member Senate. And I think a lot of people know that um, you could look back to history and the filibuster and culture were used by um, to end civil rights, anti uh, I remember uh, uh, Senator Thurman, Strom Thurman, he filibustered for 24 hours or more against the Civil Rights Act of 1957. So I just want to um, put that out there. About uh, filibustering, uh, the cloture rule? Cloture. Well, the culture rule, yeah. And people, that's, it's not just the filibuster, it's the culture rule. So it's, it's kind of two parts to that. Kind of to that. Yeah, that's cloture, C-L-O-T-U-R-E. Correct. And that was, I think, part of the original aspect of filibuster, how do you stop it? And that was by invoking cloture. Uh, which, as you pointed out, 
uh, was originally two-thirds, and then it got reduced to uh, 60. Okay. And today... And in 1917, they introduced um, the cloture. And I think that was under President Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson. I think he was the one who urged that to, to happen. Okay. So... Yeah, it gets complicated, doesn't it? It gets very complicated, even... And I like the word that you use, uh, ploy, because um, it's ploy means it's it's not sneaky, it's just to get an advantage. Right. So it's a tactic. And um, supposedly, I, I, I'm just looking at the Internet here, uh, the Senate Internet uh, webpage, the term filibuster originated from the Dutch word meaning pirate. Yes. That was interesting. And that was applied to efforts to hold the Senate floor in order to prevent a vote on the bill. And, and, you're, and you know, it's, it's just amazing how many times the GOP, the Republicans, have used the filibuster um, against establishing rights for African Americans, stop anti-lynching laws. This is laws that were put forth for the good of the people, for the populace, and um, it's really interesting uh, how it has evolved. And, you know, there is a book that I, I don't know if it's in print, but Christine Todd Whitman wrote a book called It's My Party Too. She's a Republican, former Republican governor in New Jersey, and she warned the Republican Party uh, what was happening with the takeover by the extreme right. And uh, back then when she wrote this book, I think it was maybe maybe 15, 20 years ago already, um, there was there was starting to, the Republicans were putting a litmus test for um, uh, Republicans to, you know, to be uh, corralled. And as you know, now there, um, anytime a Republican like Liz Cheney goes against uh, uh, <clears throat> what Trump was doing or um, not Trump was doing, uh, against um, what they were doing against Trump, they get um, uh, corralled in. But last night, and, uh, in a, yeah. by secret ballot, she overwhelmingly retained her uh, leadership position and uh, her slot in the House. Uh, well, let me ask really? you a question. So... Uh, the, uh, over the years, the filibuster was misused many times. So would it be better, in your opinion, and I'm only asking for your opinion, would it be better to eliminate the filibuster or make a different kind of rules change? I think there needs to be a different type of rule. I think the filibuster should not be used for um, blocking presidential appointments. That's number one. Uh, the filibuster is widely used, too widely used, and I think there should be should be some reining in of it. And um, I'm not sure how that could be done, but eliminate the filibuster being used against presidential appointments. Number one. Well, that was already and, stopped by Harry Reid. Huh? That was already stopped by Harry Reid. Uh, but I thought um, Mitch McConnell was doing that. No. Harry yeah. Reid, uh, in order to get uh, the cabinet filled out for uh, Barack Obama, uh, changed it from uh, 60 to uh, 
51 in order to get uh, cabinet appointments made and lower court judges as well. The only thing he didn't allow it to change for was Supreme Court justices and regular legislation. I missed that. Wow. That's good to know. <laughs> well, but, yeah, we learn things, and I learn things from the listeners, and you learn uh, things from the, the program. So, yeah, that's a good thing. Harry, did Harry, that rule that Harry Reid brought in, is that permanent? Yeah, and then Mitch McConnell okay. uh, adjusted it even further. He made it so that only 51 votes are needed to appoint a Supreme Court justice as well. All right. So there, there's a movement there. Yeah, so Boy, I can't keep track of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so much. Okay, thank well, you. Well, thank you for the show. Well, thank you for calling in and listening. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that was nice. Okay, so where I was starting to go, oh, whoops, we got another call. Good. Hi, caller. You're live and on the air. Uh. You know, it's a very interesting topic that you brought up, and it certainly is frustrating to to sit back. I guess probably when Barack Obama was president was probably a pretty egregious example of of a minority kind of stomping on a you know you know the platform of the Democrats, especially at first when they when they had houses as well. And you know, you're just sitting back, going, you know, this is ridiculous. No one can get anything done. Um, but when I really, you know think it through, the concept of you just eliminate the filibuster. So it's just the majority rule. Um, you can contemplate a scenario where, you know, every four years or two years, abortion becomes illegal. And then it becomes legal again. Or, you know, big questions, uh, disarming America. Uh, you know, big ticket items that that come up that, you know, one could argue, perhaps, that um, Joe Biden won the election because people voted against Trump. Uh, I think a lot of people are kind of saying, oh, there's this big mandate because, you know, Biden and Harris won. But, you know, look at the Lincoln Project. You look at Never Trumpers, et cetera. I'd say there's some argument. A fair amount of people just voted against Trump, not for per se, the Democratic platforms. Um, you know, people don't necessarily want to pay for people's college and things like that. Um, you know, having these kind of high majorities required to do legislation, I think, helps stop or certainly curtails this wild pendulum swing that could take place you know, literally every every couple of years, as the Senate and the you know the House, we're, we're talking about the Senate now, but um, as they kind of change their power structure, um, I can just imagine a place that uh, where the U.S. would just be schizophrenic well, <laughs> to a degree. When did um, abortion uh, get ruled out totally uh, and then come back again? I don't think. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, I believe, uh, there are attempts by the states to erode the ability for a woman to get an abortion, but it hasn't been outlawed yet. Mm. Oh, exactly. No, it hasn't. I think part of that is that it hasn't been at a national level, as an example. So I'm just using that as an example. That could become a national law uh, if 
one certain side was in power and the other side was not in power, and it took 51 votes. And, um, you know, they certainly could uh, write laws differently. I mean, they're, they're going to do that with, with the firearm situation as well. With Heller, the right to own a firearm has been declared as an individual, something that's okay, but the state's try to stomp on that all the time, and I would argue the feds are certainly going to do that. Okay. Um, Is there a, a question in there someplace that we could... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my, it, well, it's a question, and it goes to kind of your opinion on eliminating the filibuster. So if you eliminate it, I'm curious your thoughts on how that would affect, you know, national laws and the ever-changing people in power. I'm curious to get your opinion on the elimination of it. Well, uh, I'm not sure that it's a good thing right now because uh, between not bringing up uh, laws that were passed in the House for a vote and filibustering against other laws, um, I don't think Mitch McConnell shows us a reason why we should keep the filibuster. So uh, I don't think it should be there. It wasn't in the original Constitution, as you heard in my opening, and I don't know that it's being very... Uh, useful right now. Uh, is there a way to protect minority rights? Well, we'll have to think about that. And the good thing about having a real debate is to listen to two sides and those who are for the elimination of the filibuster and those who want to retain it in some form. Because until I hear a form that is more reasonable and equitable, um, I don't really think it's necessary. Yeah, and that's a it's a really it's a really good question and a really good debate. And uh, I, I'm curious if people have a a better idea uh, to to kind of stop potential just wild swings and uh, the ability for you know the minority party to have some amount of power just because there's one extra person on the other side. Uh, it's just it's a fascinating fascinating discussion and i'm just i'm curious what other people think on something that works because uh, i agree i mean i'm i'm personally yeah mitch mcconnell's been obstructing everything so but that could be us <laughs> that could be us to the other side too as well so well thank you very uh, anyway. much for your call yeah. yeah thank you okay so um I was starting to get into budget reconciliation in the Senate. Uh, okay, we have another phone call. I'm not upset about that. I really like the idea. If I don't get to reconciliation today, I'll do it another day. Hi, caller. You're live and on the air. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering why a majority ruled in some cases because um, to me, abortion is murder, and to allow the majority of people that say that murder is okay, to allow it to occur, then becomes legal, that is insanity, in my opinion, and to call it not murder is to say that if they did nothing, that a human wouldn't come out of that, doing nothing, you know. But the problem with it is, Women and men that have sex without knowing that they could have a child over it or pretend like it's an okay because there's an abortion thing is, I don't know, mind-boggling in my world. So, 
majority rules in some cases is completely wrong if the majority can't see clearly and act appropriately. And, like, if you can't protect yourself physically from having a child, then abstinence is your only option. Well, the Otherwise, get married, have kids, have sex all you want. But just to have sex, have sex, and then kill the offspring of that union is hideous and horrifying in my brain. So if you could respond to that in any way, thanks. Okay. Bye. Thank you very much for your call. Well, the uh, one aspect of that uh, discussion is the fact that when uh, Roe v. Wade was uh, created, uh, women were left out of the discussion. This was all done by a bunch of white guys, older white guys, who determined what the rules were for having an abortion and whether it should be legal or not. And it's not just a matter of uh, getting into a happy relationship, having children. Well, there are some times when having the child will uh, endanger the life of the mother. Uh, we got to think about that too, I, I believe. And uh, it's an opinion uh, that you consider it murder. Um, other people don't. Uh, I think that's another uh, topic for a, a longer debate, not by us necessarily. Hi, caller. You're live and on the air. Hi, Bob. Um, sorry to take you back to, to filibustering again. That's okay. One <laughs> <laughs> so my understanding was, and I'll use the example of Merrick Garland's Supreme Court nomination under President Obama, that Mitch McConnell had the power to prevent that from even going to a hearing, and he didn't have to invoke a filibuster. He just simply didn't take it up. So if the filibuster buster were eliminated, um, how would that problem change or be solved? The majority leader of the Senate, if he can prevent anything from going to committee or to a hearing? Well, that's it. Uh, he has that kind of power. He had over 300 bills that the House had passed that he wouldn't even bring up for debate or discussion or vote. Uh, that's the power that the majority leader has in the Senate. In the House, uh, the Speaker of the House has an equal amount of power to uh, do or not do things. So this is just the way we've got it set up. Uh, right. I don't know that we could change it that simply. Okay. So the so changing the filibuster rule would not change that. No. Uh, right. In fact, if you want to talk about changing things, what about the Electoral College? Well, yeah, that would be a whole other program, wouldn't it? I'd love to have you yes. have that particular program. That would be lovely. Well, actually, I did. I had it with a Harvard professor named Alexander Kazar, who wrote a book, Why Do We Still Have the Filibuster? I'm sorry, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Well, I'm sorry, I missed that one. I'll have to look it up on the uh, archives. Okay, but yes, there are a lot of things that we would like to change, uh, but... We can't, have, for whatever the reason, the gentleman who was just on, obviously, he has a strong opinion about uh, not having any abortions. That's a different stance than other people take. So we do have differing opinions throughout the country. Uh, unfortunately, there were some people on January 6th that decided that the only way to get their way was to take physical action and imperil lives and actually take lives. So... Uh, this is a simpler thing to worry about whether uh, the filibuster uh, 
continues or doesn't, and how we can get the uh, majority leader in the Senate to take up all bills that come his or her way. Good idea. Well, thank you, Bob. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. So uh, it seems that uh, budget reconciliation, uh, I'll probably be interrupted again, but this is another way around a filibuster. Uh, and it's something that is used uh, within uh, a fiscal year. And yes, I do have another call. Hi, caller. You're live and on the air. Oh, thank you, Bob. Hi. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about this filibuster. I just heard there's a really good book out. I haven't read it yet. I think I might call Kill Switch, blah, 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 about the filibuster and the history of it. But uh, this filibuster thing to me, I got to thinking, and I don't know if it's ever been put in these terms, but there's 100 people in the Senate, and one person can block something by filibustering, and I kind of think that the filibuster is the tyranny of one. I wondered if you ever heard that term in relation to the filibuster, because it's like one person's ruling, and I think we basically think about a majority rule in a democracy. Well, I think that that one person could invoke the filibuster rule, but usually they're backed up by... Uh, a, a number of other people. I don't know that one person could stop legislation from coming up for a vote, uh, because if there's only one person against it, you could probably invoke cloture and get 60 people to say, let's end debate and vote on, on the bill. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, yeah I mean, you can only talk for so long without giving, <laughs> giving out. Well, it sometimes, would, it would depend on... It would depend upon how much time was set for that particular bill, as I pointed out before. If it's yeah. only 10 hours, then that person can talk for 10 hours easily, and then uh, the time extended for debate on that bill is passed. But if it's 70 or 100, not likely that somebody's going to be able to stand and talk for that yeah, long. That's what I was thinking. That, yeah, I was going to say usually you have to have more people to go along with it. Right. And, and real quick, sure. <clears throat> this thing that I know... <clears throat> This thing on abortion, I, I understand we all have different feelings about it, and um, basically Roe v. Wade was, uh, it was, they argued it on the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. My feeling about it was it always should have been argued, or could be argued, under the First Amendment, and no establishment of religion shall be, you know, presented in our country. And... Who's to say that the fetus is is a person or not a person that's murdered until it's born? I mean, religiously, I mean, this goes down the road a little, but religiously, maybe that fetus is not a person until it comes out of the womb, and then maybe God breathes life into it. So maybe that fetus is, is not murdering a, a person when it's in the state of being a fetus. And this is strictly a, I mean, this would be a scientific kind of thought about it, but also a religious thought, that this this may be, uh, you know, maybe that should have been decided on the First Amendment and no separation of church, and then how would this person that has maybe, maybe it's the personal view that it's wrong for abortion and that it's murder, but that may be viewed in terms of a religious belief, and then 
you want other people to believe of you the same as you, and then therefore you have to be the same religion as that person, and we are granted freedom of religion under the First Amendment. Yes. In fact, you've just given me an idea for another show, and that is the church-state divide is not as divided as it was when it was set up by the founders. And uh, I want to thank you very much uh, for your call. Uh, Great. You're welcome. We'll talk about other things. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, So, uh, church-state divide. Uh, There are people in this country that uh, would rather we were a religious state overall, but I think that 250 years ago, uh, the Founding Fathers had a differing idea because in uh, Great Britain, which is where many of them are from, there was a a state religion. Okay. Hi, caller. You're live and on the air. Oh, hi. Yeah. Uh, well, it's women that have abortions, so it, it's women who need to decide whether to have an abortion or not. It's not, nothing to do with the man. Um, they, they were the sperm donor. <laughs> Could have got it from a sperm bank. And then uh, as soon as the sperm touches the egg, that's a person. There's nothing more crazy than that. Well... Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I've read the Bible 14 times, so it ain't religion, it's just common sense. Well, thank you very much for your call. You know, this domination, a man has to dominate the women, that's what it's all about. Okay, thank you for the call. So, uh, <laughs> I had a number of topics that I had chosen, and I had laid out what they were about, and we seem to have strayed somewhat. Uh, I guess this is on a lot of people's minds, but I don't know that I'm the right person to conduct a discussion about abortion. Uh, So, I have another call. Hi, caller. You're live and on the air. This is the guy that um, was talking about abortion. Yes. I remember when I was in my mom's womb. I remember things that she did while I was with her. I understand that I was alive well before I was born. And for this man to say that you're not a human just because you haven't been born yet, that's ignorant. And I'm not a Christian. I just understand that once you start something and you break it, you broke it. You were too confused to begin with to be able to put yourself in a position where you had to make that decision. Thank you for the call. This is not what we're going to spend our time on today. Hi, caller. You're live and on the air. Yes, I just wanted to make a brief comment about a level of ridiculousness that the filibuster can actually be taken to when, uh, as some of us may recall, the greening, the green eggs and ham filibuster by Senator Cruz recently. (laughs) <laughs> I guess I missed that one. Oh, well, he was filibustering some issue, and some point, many hours into it, he whipped out some Dr. Seuss and spent five minutes reading to his grandchild or son or whoever it was ah. from the Senate floor. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, it was ridiculous. You can Google that and watch it yourself. Thank you very much for that tidbit of information. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, so 
should I even try to talk about uh, uh, senatorial reconciliation bills? Uh, every time I start, I get another call. Um, and obviously, uh, we're coming close uh, to the end of our time. Uh, so I think that uh, I'm just going to say that I will have a guest in two weeks, and I have several lined up. I received a whole bunch of books and uh, talked to the head publicist, and he, he's going to set me up with the various publicists for those particular uh, authors. Uh, in the meantime, I don't want to forget, following Politics, A Love Story is the wondrous world of music with Gordon Black. And I often forget uh, to uh, talk about him and his terrific show. And I don't give him enough credit for uh, what he does. And I want to do that now. So uh, I'm getting near the end here. Uh, and what I would like to do is run a drop of music and then... Uh, it'll be the end of the show this time. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.